Um, If you have your Bible, go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing our series in Revelation, looking at the seven churches that Jesus talks with. We read it to you. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, The word of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, there is one word that I want you to notice at the beginning of this letter, Um, and it will be helpful to think about terms in this context throughout the rest of this sermon, but he said, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. It's a word that's incredibly relevant in our culture today. It's the word tolerate, okay? At its core, to tolerate means showing willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. And what we are tolerant of or are intolerant of is always changing. For example, when I was in elementary school, the world was tolerant of the Backstreet Boys. Okay? I think I have a picture of them up here. So yeah, um, we were tolerant of the Backstreet Boys. And the rest of my sixth grade class was tolerant of my haircut that I modeled after Nick Carter, that little bowl of haircut. And I wonder how many of us had that Haircut. You can absolutely take that picture down now um, so that we don't have to look at it the rest of the sermon. Um, But what we're tolerant of or what we're intolerant of is always changing. And you know that because you have social media, probably. You look at Twitter, you look at Facebook. And so what we are tolerant of or intolerant of is always changing. And what we are intolerant of or tolerant of, we approach without mercy. And if you want to see judgment without mercy, it's called the internet, social media. But if you're realistic, we ought to be respecting of differing opinions, right? We ought to respect differing opinions, and we can try to understand them. But while much of the world may see tolerance as an act of love, we have to wonder, as followers of Christ, what it means for us to be intolerant or tolerant of something. What is that line where we say no? Are we say Yes. Um, Now, I'm not a parent, but I have been around enough parents and their kids to understand that if your kid comes up to you and says, hey, I want to play in the middle of the street, you don't say, you know what, they should just learn. 
right? They should, they should just learn what happens when you play in the middle of the street. Or if you would say, your kid comes up to you and they say, Mommy, I want to take a bath with the toaster, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, they have to learn, right? They, they have to know for themselves. No, that, that would not be good parenting. And I want to be clear on this. Christians cannot be tolerant of all things because God is not tolerant of all things. As a faith family, we cannot be tolerant of all things because God is not tolerant of all things. We cannot give unconditional love to the sins of the world because God does not give that tolerance. Yes, we absolutely must love. We must love what God loves and hate what God hates. But where the world is confused and what we must approach with full understanding with Scripture as our foundation is that love does not automatically mean acceptance. Love does not automatically mean acceptance. Truth matters. And it is not subjective. Truth does not change based on how we feel. And in the midst of a culture where the common belief is that truth is subjective, where our feelings and emotions decide what we are tolerant or intolerant of, that we have to be careful that as a church we do not sacrifice truth in order to be perceived as loving. So here's the question. And that's a very tricky line, right? Here's the question. What does it look like for a church to be both loving and correcting, where we stand for truth? What does it mean to be both loving and correcting? Because here's the deal, like, read the Gospels. Jesus embraced the sinner. He said the greatest commandment is that you love God, and the second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. He said pray for your enemies. He looked at the crowd that was crucifying crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like, yes, love. But scripture is also clear that we are called to be holy as God is holy. And that if we are going to tolerate unrepented sin, if we are going to be an accepting community of all beliefs and behaviors, we have to ask the question, is that right? And if you look throughout Scripture, there is a theme that says no. Paul tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated, there's that word again, tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And he says this, and he says, and you are arrogant. Why are they arrogant? Man, they are allowing this sin to go unchecked. And then he says, and he says, ought you not rather mourn? You should be mourning this sin. It does not leave you to life. It leads you to destruction. And he says, let him who has done this be removed from you. In fact, the first instruction given by Jesus to the church is found in Matthew 18. The, the, the first mention of the church is Matthew 16, where Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. But the first instruction is given in Matthew 18, verse 15, and it says this. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you, 
as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the first instruction that Jesus gives the church is how to correct someone who refuses to repent of their sin. And so this is weighty stuff. And so we have to ask the question, how do we balance that? What does it look like to be a church that is both loving and also correcting? And we will use Jesus' words to the city of Thyatira as our guide. So it's interesting, of the seven cities in Revelation 2 and 3, the city of Thyatira is the least well-known and it is the least impressive. Like, it's not a big tourist destination, yet it is the longest letter of the seven. Thank you, Matthew, for giving this one to me. Um, just kidding. Um, but it is the longest of the seven. And so Jesus has a lot to say here. He has a lot to say. Some of it is bad. A lot of it is bad. But some of it is good as well. And Jesus starts with the good. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, isn't this what we want for Renewal Church? Isn't this the kind of church that you want to walk into a church that is described like this. He says, I know your works. I know what you do. He praises their love, their faith, their service, their endurance. Where Ephesus lacked love, they are excellent in their love. This is a vibrant church where you walk in and you are greeted with kindness. Where people aren't just saying hi because they have to, because they are saying hi because they are actually glad to see you. This is a welcoming place. They offer you coffee. They learn your children's name. Maybe they invite you to a home group that you walk into this place and you immediately feel like you belong. This is a good church. But here's what their problem was. They tolerated false teaching and immoral behavior. Two things that Jesus is objectively intolerant of. So this church is loving. They are serving. They are persevering but they are blind, and they are undiscerning. undiscerning. Their tolerance is not love. It is unfaithfulness. Their tolerance is not love. It is unfaithfulness. And there is a crucial misunderstanding, alive and well today, that love equals unconditional affirmation. And so if Ephesus was an unloving religious church and Smyrna was a persecuted 1040 window church in Pergamum, an immature and undiscerning church filled with passionate college students, then Thyatira can be defined as a church that is willing to overlook sin so that they could fit into the culture. And before we begin to point fingers at churches in our community that do this, or you think of another church somewhere in the country or around the world that, that does this, we have to be honest and say that that line can be crossed very easily. It can be crossed very easily. It's interesting, when a church starts like Renewal Church, like a a church plant that we are, um, you don't start off by saying, you know what, we're going to be known as a church that overlooks sin and embraces the culture. That's not how you start. You start with convictions. You start with guardrails where you say, we're going on a destination, and these are the convictions and the passions and the doctrines that we hold on to. You don't start by saying, you know what, we're going to drive in the ditch of heresy. You don't start like that. But that line from embracing sin and embracing a normalization of false teaching and a normalization that says, you know, we only believe that part of the Bible is true. 
are that Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. He loves you anyway. That line can be crossed very easily. Eventually, what was once compromise becomes normal. What was once a compromise becomes normal. As I was studying for this week, I had a random song pop into my head. And some of you uh, will know it. It's by the great Christina Aguilera. She says, I am beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't bring me down. I am beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can bring me down. You know the song? Um, I would say that that passes for the gospel in too many churches. You are fine just how you are. There is no need for repentance. There is no need for transformation. The cross of Christ is seen only as a symbol of love, and we forget that as much as the cross is the love of God, it is also the judgment of God on sin. And in this church in Thyatira, they had embraced immorality and worship of idols. And they had come through a woman who was referred to as Jezebel. It was no longer a compromise like we saw in Pergamum. It had become normal, part of their culture. And so look at verse 20 with me. Um, It says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. Now, Jezebel is not actually her name. She is referred to as Jezebel because what she was doing was similar to the queen Jezebel. We find her story in 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9, but she was probably the most wicked queen in all of Israel's history. She was is what is known as the power behind the throne, behind the weak King Ahab. And she had led Israel and led her husband to worship pagan idols, to kill God's prophets. She had murdered a righteous man named Naboth to get his vineyard. One of the commentaries I read um, said it this way, we name our daughters David and Paul, we name our daughter." Or, Our sons, David and Paul, our daughters, Mary and Rachel, we name our dogs Goliath and Nero, but we name our cats Jezebel, right? Um, Jezebel was eventually, and sorry if you like cats, um, Jezebel was eventually pushed out of a window, trampled by horses, and eaten by dogs. She was a very bad lady, okay? So this woman in Thyatira, she was evil, and she had led this church into what Jesus refers to in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. And Jesus says, you are allowing someone like that to have power over my people. And Jesus proclaims judgment for her. And that brings us to our first point. A loving and correcting church watches for one another and hates the sin that tempts us. We cannot be a people that allows false teaching that goes against the truth of scriptures, and we cannot overlook continued sin that leads us on a path of dissatisfaction and destruction. Why? Why can't we allow these things to just continue? Why can't we allow them to just be normal? Well, first, because Jesus didn't allow it. Like Matthew 8, verse 6, Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So when he says little ones, he's referring to his disciples. At the beginning of the chapter, he talks about babies. But here, he's talking about his disciples. And so he says, these these are believers, followers of Christ. 
And he says, if you are someone who would reject my teaching and who would uh, embrace sin and you would try to tempt another believer into sin, he says, it is better that you would die a painful death. I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. So why does Jesus have something against this woman in Thyatira? Because she's causing Jesus' little ones to sin. Jesus takes this very seriously. Notice that Jesus points out that she is teaching and seducing who? He says, my servants. It's not just that she was practicing sexual morality and worshiping idols. It's that she was seducing fellow believers to follow her. This isn't someone from the outside making a suggestion. This is one of their own leading them to destruction. And notice that she calls herself a prophetess, which means it wasn't just that she was teaching something that goes against the very words of God. She was claiming that what she was saying was from God. And people believed her, and the church leadership did nothing about it. And so you might ask the question, Man, how does this happen? Like, how does this happen in churches? Where we will embrace some kind of false teaching, and before you know it, we don't recognize who we are anymore. How does this happen? Well, I can tell you two ways. Two ways that sin becomes normalized and rationalized in churches. Now, this can happen in many other ways, um, and it happens in our personal life too, but the first way is that when we are looking at some kind of sin, we say, it's not that big of a deal because it's not really what I believe in my heart. It's not that big of a deal if I do this because it's not what I believe in my heart. That is most certainly what is happening here. In the Greco-Roman world, in order to work, you had to be part of a guild. And Matthew has talked about this before. A guild could be similar to a union. And Thyatira was a city mainly of blue-collar workers. So construction, things like that. And each guild had to ascribe themselves to a Greek God, like Zeus, or Apollo, or Aphrodite. And let's say you go to a guild meeting. We'll call it CATS. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with CATS today. But we'll call it CAT, the Concrete Association of Thyatira, right? And so you go to your CAT meeting, and at this meeting, the leader of the guild says, will you thank me, or will you join me in thanking Zeus for looking after us? So everyone begins to provide gifts and portions of their food to a statue of Zeus in the middle of the room. And so what do you do? right? If you don't do it, you're, you're not going to get paid. You, you could get fired. You probably will get fired. And you could get persecuted, maybe even killed. Do you partake so that you can appeal to the crowd, but in your heart you say, sorry, God, this isn't actually what I believe? This woman would have said, yes, God says it's okay for you to partake. And too many times we approach the crowds as cowards, rather than as the saved sons and daughters of Christ. The second way we rationalize and normalize sin is because we think, it's okay, God will forgive me later. It's okay, God will forgive me later. It's not that big of a deal if I look at this on my phone, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. It's not that big of a deal if I speak like this to my wife or my children, God will forgive me Later, it's okay if I gossip about that person. It's okay if I compromise, compromise now because I will be forgiven later. And it stands in direct contrast to who our God is and who he calls us to be. And if we allow sin to be normalized among us, then we will be judged. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed 
and those who commit adultery with her I will, be thrown, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, there is some debate here on what exactly is meant by sickbed. Sickbed could actually mean, like literally, disease and illness, but it could also mean, and I tend to fall in this camp, um, but it could also mean the finality of actual death and eternal condemnation in hell. And that's because of what he says about her children later. Divine judgment was about to fall not only on this woman, but also on those who committed adultery with her. And the Lord threatens to cast them into great tribulation, not the eschatological tribulation that we see in Revelation 4 through 19, but some kind of distress or trouble. And since these were um, the sinning Christians who had believed her lies, he promises severe chastening, possibly even physical death. And then we see a third group, which is interesting. And it's probably the most striking, one of the most striking verses in this text. He says, I will strike her children dead. Wow. I will strike her children dead. Now, this could be understood as her followers, but he's already addressed them. He addressed them right before this. And so I believe that um, he's talking about her actual children here. That this had been going on for so long. This had become normalized in this church for so long that there is another generation that is teaching the same thing. And so he says, I'm going to put them to death. So regardless of whether it was her followers or her actual children, the result is that God's judgment is certain, it is intense, and it is painful. The message to us is if you want to be a messenger for God, then you better be speaking his truth. And you better not be leading people's, uh, God's people astray. And if you are walking in unrepented sin, it's time to wake up and embrace something better. Embrace something better. And here's what we see here about the judgment of Jesus. It is perceptive and it sees through our facade. It is perceptive and it sees through our facade. That's why Jesus introduced himself in verse 18 as the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. So that phrase, Son of God... You'll see different words, like you'll see Son of Man with a capital M, and you'll see Son of Man with a lowercase m. Uh, Son of Man is referring to like Daniel 7, where he comes with the clouds. He's the king. He has all authority. Son of Man with a lowercase m is talking about his humanity, that he can relate to us, that he came from perfect heaven to broken earth, and he sympathizes with us. He comes in humility. Now, Son of God with a capital G, this is the God who comes in power and judgment. And it says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. That speaks of his omniscience, his penetrating, perceptive, and piercing ability to see all that is. He sees all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, and nothing escapes his vision. And you can rest assured that he sees through our deception. And then it says that his feet are like burnished bronze. This tells us that the judgment of Jesus is powerful, that he is prepared to crush his Enemies, And if we are indulging in unrepented sin, then we are put at odds with God. And the church, the faith family, has a duty to look out for one another and to correct false teaching, to walk alongside those who 
are fighting with sin, are embracing sin. And that leads to my second point. As the church, we plead for repentance and reconciliation before judgment. And this is important. This is our hope. It's tempting when you hear a sermon like this. Um, You either say, well, I guess I have to be perfect, or you say, I'm not worthy to be here. Because you feel the weight of your sin. You know the shame. You know the things that you hide from us. And so when you hear this idea of judgment and correction, you want to shell up because you want to run away. And some of you are very hurt by your own experience with the church, but you need to understand that judgment is never the goal. The goal is redemption. It's, it's repentance. It's reconciliation. You cannot be perfect. None of us can. And our hope is that first, as a faith family, we would be honest about our imperfection. That we would be honest about our imperfection. And second, that we would strive for reconciliation. That we would be good, we would be okay with God and with one another. And we want to love you. But please don't mistake our love for acceptance of something that will destroy your soul in the long run. That's what sin does. And if you are walking in unrepented sin, it may feel good, but you need to understand it is destroying you. It's fun to have a pet lion cub. But what happens when that lion grows up? It eats you, right? And so if you are playing with sin as, as if it is your pet, we have to take a stand and say our love for you is that you would turn to something better. So let me be clear. If an issue comes up in our faith family where someone is found to be in sin, then our goal is not to judge you, but rather it is to love. And the best love that we can give you is to say, look at Jesus. Look at how good he is. That we would sit together, we would look at the heart of God and say, isn't he so much better? Look at his truth. Look at his grace. Why are you drinking in sand and wondering why you're still thirsty? Look at his goodness. Man, look at the cross. Isn't he better? He hates the sin that you are walking in, and he is calling you into something more. Let us love you. Let us walk with you. Let us fight with you. And Jesus, here, he's pleading with them. He's telling them to repent. And verse 22, he says, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And so if you refuse to repent, if you say, no, I will not stop doing this evil, then God has given us clear instruction. That's what he did with this woman. In verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. He says, I gave her time. So as a church, practically, how do we handle this? If someone is found to be in sin, if if there is someone teaching something opposite of Scripture here, and we've had this happen before, what have we done? We have looked at Matthew 18, verse 15. This is what we will continue to come back to as a faith family, because Jesus has given clear instruction. So in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, and go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And there have been many times at Renewal Church where someone will come to myself or Matthew 
and they will have a concern about someone else. And our first response is always, go and talk to your brother. Go and talk to your sister. That's the instruction that Jesus has given us. We will not gossip, and we will not brush things under the rug. Under the rug. You go to your brother. You go to your sister. But if they refuse, then you do, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen to you, then it's time to bring in the faith family. It's time to bring in your community. And this is also, just a sidebar, why it is so important at Renewal Church that we have elders. Right now, it's Matthew and I, but we are asking God to provide and to prepare and to grow and to form, man, a group of men who would be passionate about the things of God, who would have the heart of God, and we'd be able to walk alongside you in the midst of sin, to call those into repentance. In fact, next week, we're going to pause this this sermon series in Revelation, and we're going to preach specifically on elders, why they're important. And we're going to ask you as the church to enter into a week of prayer and possibly even fasting, asking that God would have men rise up in this faith family, because this is important. And this is why we ask all covenant members to be in a home group, man, because you need people alongside of you in this fight, that you would come to a brother, you would come to a sister and say, hey, man, we've seen this. Can we talk? Can we pray together? Can I come alongside of you in this fight? But if they refuse to do even that, even to embrace that, then he says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If over time that person still refuses to repent, then Jesus says, do not treat them as a fellow believer. But again, this is not the goal. The goal is restoration and reconciliation, that your heart would be restored and you would be reconciled to God and to one another. And hear me, no one is untouchable. We are all tempted by sin, and none of us are perfect. Not me, not Matthew, not you. And there may be a time when you may need to call one of us into repentance, And we pray that never happens, but we're not perfect. And here's the deal. This is why being in community is so terrifying for some of us. This is why being in community is so terrifying for us, that there have been many of you who have sat in a service like this, and you've gotten to know people like the people around you, and they have hurt you. They have tried to correct you because they either misunderstood something, or you were actually doing something, but they tried to correct you, and they did not love you. They tried to correct you, and they did not love you. And I've sat at many kitchen tables with people in this room who are still healing. And you need to hear, man, we love you. We want you to know the goodness and the grace and love of Christ. And I know we are asking a lot that you would trust us. And we don't take that for granted. But we have to find this balance of loving one another, but also not compromising on the truth of Scripture. And it takes a lot of trust. 
And so we are asking, I am asking that you trust us, that you trust the people around you, that you would have the faith in Christ to say, you know what, you are so good that I'm going to take this risk and embrace my faith family. And then in verse 25, um, he says this to the rest of the church. He says, only hold fast what you have until I come, because there are some there that did not embrace what she was teaching. And he says, only hold fast to what you have until I come. And here's the deal. What we believe about the things of God matters. What we believe about the things of God matters, and we cannot compromise on issues of doctrine. And so you may be asking, okay, you're talking about correcting, you're talking about um, calling out of sin, and so what, what are those things? Like, like, what are the things that we are watchful of? What are the things that we believe as Renewal Church that we'd say, these are things that we do not compromise on? What are those things? And so I want to tell you a few of them, and I may get a little excited, okay, because these are the core truths to who God is is the very first thing that we believe at Renewal Church that we cannot compromise on is that the Bible was inspired by God and is inerrant and infallible. Belief in God's word is non-negotiable. And here's the thing, not just part of it, but all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. And you may think, well, duh, everybody believes the Bible. Like every Christian believes the Bible. I remember sitting and Mary Harden Baylor, my junior year in college, walking into a Pauline epistles class, and the very first words of the professor's mouth was, we're going to study the ideas of Paul. Not inspired word, but ideas and opinions of Paul. This isn't some kind of belief that is just in New York or in some other part of the world. No, this is here in our lives that there are people in our community who believe that the only words that we should actually follow are the words of Jesus. While, yes, we should follow the words of Jesus, but we should follow every single word and period from Genesis to Revelation. We cannot afford to compromise on this. The scripture is our hope that it reveals to us the very words of God, of what God thinks of us, of how we ought to think of him, of how we ought to love and encourage and treat one another. It is what we look to, inspired by the very word of God, is the words of Paul, is the words of Moses, on and on and on, as the Spirit opens our eyes to understand the text. And at any point, if someone, whether me or Matthew, stands on this stage and preaches anything opposite of that, then that person should be removed. That person should be removed. The second thing that we believe is that there is only one living and true God. He is the eternal, infinite creator. He is the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He is merciful, just, and loving. He governs everything according to his sovereign will for his glory alone. We do not worship a pastor our personality, or an idea, or a philosophy of ministry. We do not worship a politician, our political party. We worship the one true God. He is worthy of all of our worship. No one and nothing else is. And we also believe that in the midst of this one true God, there is also three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, perfectly loving one another in community. And God has wired our hearts 
to love in that same community. As the Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. He has created us in His image to yearn for that love from Him and from one another. And we also believe that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we are all guilty before God. That at the core, our very nature is opposed to God. And therefore, salvation from that sin comes only by the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. He is fully man and fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and rose from the grave, and in his death was the full atonement of sin. And because of his sacrificial substitute, he has forgiven our sin and absorbed the wrath of God and adopted us as sons and daughters. So don't let anyone stand on this stage and say that because Jesus was so loving that there was no actual need for his shedding of blood. It's another popular teaching that there is no hell, there is no judgment. No, he was our substitute and he absorbed the wrath of God for us. The cross of Christ was necessary for our salvation. And we also believe that in the midst of that, of Jesus' sacrificial blood, that justification comes only through faith, not as an act of works. You cannot earn your righteousness. It is the grace of God through faith in Christ. But also, that is, in the midst of that, in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated. In other words, you must be born again. It's something that only God can do. You cannot will yourself to be a Christian. It is God who changes your heart. It is God who changes your mind. Your old self has been crucified and put to death, and your new self walks in the life that Christ has given you. And this is evident by regeneration brought forth in repentance, that God would stir your affections and lead you away away from your sin to something better, that you would say, man, I am heading here. I'm looking towards the gospel. I'm looking towards my devotion to Christ, that God would bring about repentance in your heart, that he would take away that heart of flesh and put it in its place, a heart of stone. There is so much more to, to what we believe. And by the way, I took this off of our website. Like, I'm not smart. I just took this off our website. So you can go there and read these things for yourself. But we haven't talked about baptism. We haven't talked about the church. I mean, there's so much more to what we believe. But here's what I want you to hear. These things that I just mentioned, we cannot compromise on them. It's not an option. We cannot afford it. The stakes are too high, and he's too good. We will not settle on anything less than the true gospel because it is tempting to substitute the lifeblood of the gospel and replace it with Kool-Aid so that it tastes better to the crowds. And we will not, cannot do it. And in order to denounce false teaching from us, from anyone else, we must know who our God is. So many of us have been playing around in the kiddie pool of our understanding of God for far too long. Why do I say kiddie pool? Well, when I was a kid... um, my mom came in and she said, hey, you want to invite some of your friends over to go swimming? And I was like, swimming? Absolutely. So she was going to go to Wally World and buy a pool. Wally World is what we called Walmart. And so she goes off to Wally World and I call my friends and say, hey, why don't you come over and we'll go swimming? My mom's going to get a pool. 
And so she pulls up, goes through the cattle guard, and I do not see a pool strapped on the roof. And I'm like, oh no, what's going on? And so she, she pulls in the driveway, and I'm like, where's our pool? And she said, it's in the trunk. And I said, what do you mean it's in the trunk? And so I open up the trunk, and guess what it was? A kiddie pool. I'm like 10 years old, all right? And so we pull that kiddie pool out, and we just trade places the afternoon. Like, okay, you, you want to get in? I think I'm done, right? And so it's just this awkward moment for me and my friends. Here's what we've done in the church. God saves us, and we're here in this kiddie pool of our knowledge of God, which for that season of life is okay. And we have our little rubber ducky, and we play around in it, and we splash, right? But there has to be a point where you step out of the kiddie pool, and you dive deep into the things of God, where you go to the ocean, and not only look at the beautiful landscape of the glory of God, but you dive deep. You put on scuba gear. And you go into the water, and you see the fish, you see the reefs, you see everything that our God is, and you say, yes, this is why I'm here. This is why I I do what I do. This is why, why I treat my family the way I do. This is why I go to home group. This is why I correct people, why I watchful, I'm watchful, and I fight for them against their sin, because this is who my God is. We have to know who he is. Dive deep into the things of God. At one point, the kiddie pool was sufficient for you, but I can guarantee that it is not anymore. Know who your God is. Don't take my word for it. (laughs) Don't take Matthew's word for it. Dive deep into the things of God. Don't be afraid of those hard texts, like Revelation 2.18, okay? Dive deep into the things of God. Now, if we do hold fast to these truths, What is the promise? Verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and he says, I will give him the morning star. So this idea of a scepter and a star, right? A scepter and a star, this idea of the King Jesus, but the glory of Jesus. We are promised the morning star. What's that? Last week, Matthew mentioned the story of Balak and Balaam. I won't go into it, but in the fourth oracle from Balaam, he says this in Numbers twenty-four seventeen. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's that idea of ruling the nations. It says, he shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Here's the deal. In the end, if you hold fast to Christ, you will get Christ. That's the reward. He is the greatest gift that you could ever imagine. He is better. You may not get that job. You may not get that car. You may not get a fair trial on social media. You may not get a fair treatment in this life. You may not get a lot of things, but you will get Jesus, and he is more than enough.